O God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love toward you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the sixth Sunday of Easter, May the 22nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. Um, it's been a, a good week in a lot of ways. We're marking the, uh, the first month that we've been without our son, Will. <clears throat> and it's difficult, but the Lord's been good to us. He's shown us some interesting things along the way. We've had visions and uh, other kinds of things that have really sustained us in remarkable ways. We uh, found a letter... A, kind of. He, he, he was writing a, an essay uh, on things that inspire me, and one of the things that he talked about was is that he, he had been through some difficult times, and he wanted to, to reorient his life, and one of the things that he said specifically was is that, that I'm looking forward to walking again as a man of faith. And so that was probably a week or so before he died. And, and it's just, so that was deeply important for me to see that. I mean, he said some things about us, me and Suzanne, about, you know, kind of making things right with us for the first time in a long time because he'd been struggling with, um, well, another person, let's say. And, uh, and that had been a very difficult journey for him. And, and so he, he was looking forward to making things right. But if he had said, you know, un- unbelievably kind and, and um, complimentary things about us, then that would have meant less to me, frankly, than seeing that, that his goal was to walk again as a man of faith. It was a, a powerful testimony to the work the Lord was doing in his heart prior to his death. Um, it, it's, um, you know, an, an odd thing to, to continue to process as we go along, um, but we're so grateful for the friends and uh, others that have come alongside and for those who have prayed for us and those who have reached out to us and all that. So it's been a blessed time in many, many ways, a time of drawing closer and closer to the Lord and hearing his voice more clearly possibly than I have in quite a while. So anyway, um, that's kind of where we are and and sort of looking forward to the next season of life together and and how Suzanne and I can um, sort of navigate and, and what it is it means to be just, you know, the two of us. And so anyway, it's been that kind of a, an odd week, but a, but a good week in, in many, many ways. So there's one thing that continues to trouble us, and, and I'm confident that that will end soon. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a person again. So anyway, um, we I've been thinking a lot this week about um, what does it mean to love Jesus? What does it mean? How do I display that? And Jesus says here in the gospel today, we're going to see he's going to give us a, a, a pretty straightforward way to measure how we love him. And it ties in with last week, to be honest with you, where last week we were talking about loving one another and, and being willing to expand the circle of those that we love to include all those who are brothers and sisters, whether they belong to other churches or whether they, they belong to our own church, whether they belong to different denominations, whether they worship in the same way, whether they look the same way, whether they act the same way as we do uh, or not. And how do we expand the circle of, of our love for one another, particularly the brothers and sisters we have in Christ? And it's important for us to be able to do that because we need to see the body of Christ as as the worldwide expression of um, of the body, not just our little uh, local uh, 
expression, but but in, in all its forms, all its colors, all its varieties. It's it, 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 this I believe has today's lesson has something to do with how do we get there from here? What do we do, and how do we understand that? Paul understood it probably first and best uh, of all those who came after Jesus, and so we're going to see that we're going to look first at the lesson from Acts, which is Acts 16, verses 9 to 15. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, come to, over to Macedonia and help us. So who is this man? Um, is it's, it's odd in some ways that it's a man of Macedonia that calls Paul because when he goes there, he only meets a group of women. Now, there, there's a lot of speculation around what's going on in Philippi when he goes there, but, but this man of Macedonia um, doesn't seem to be a particular man of Macedonia, but, but Paul sees this in a vision, this man of Macedonia, and how he, he, he immediately responds. When he'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called on us to preach the gospel to them. So did you hear the, the pronoun shift there, that concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them? So who is this us? Well, it would include then Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. So he, at this time, has joined himself up with Paul and the others who were going. Silas has, has gone with Paul on this journey. Barnabas went with John Mark because Paul was still angry with John Mark. And so Barnabas left and went with him, and so Paul takes along Silas. And he was not the only one who would have gone with him. There would have been others, and now we know that it includes Luke. He says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So, So Troas is a seaport, and they go to Samothrace, another seaport. Another day, they go to Neapolis, which is another seaport. And then from there, they go inland, and they go inland to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, which would would tend to suggest that that a great many Romans had displaced the original uh, inhabitants of Philippi. So, so the Roman soldiers, typically those who were retired from government service of any sort, they would be able to go and settle in these places and sort of form this Roman colony there. So Rome would form these outposts um, for judicial reasons and other reasons to spread their culture, but there's already a Greek culture. Here was, a, it was an important center during the time of Alexander the Great, a couple of centuries before this. So you, you've got this city now, which is a sizable place. It's probably at this time between ten and 15,000 people. Um, so it's a sizable place, but what we're told, it's a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And what that means to be a leading city is multiple things. It would have been a governmental city, but it would also have been an important place for trade. And so, so there's, it's a place where, where you would expect to find a, a Jewish community. And Paul, when he traveled, always went first to synagogues. And so Luke tells us, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. So they left the city proper and went down to the banks of the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, for, for centuries, there's been the supposition, essentially, that these women had gone down there to pray at the riverside, at the, on the river banks, and that there was no synagogue in the town, and, and that would indicate then that, that if they had to go outside the city, down to the riverside, then, then it suggests that there possibly weren't 
10 Jewish men in town. That, that, because the 10 Jewish men were required to form a minyan uh, in order to plant a synagogue there. And that idea goes back to Abraham bargaining with the Lord over Sodom and saying, if there are 10 men there, will you not destroy the city? And so what, what the minyan, what the, the 10 men requirement meant was is that, that if there were not 10 righteous men, 10 Jewish men in the city, then it was unsafe to build a synagogue because God might destroy it at any time. And it's, it's based on more than just a number. It's based in also that if the righteousness of God isn't being shown and proclaimed in a place, then, then it's likely that it's going to go downhill and it's going to go in the wrong direction. It's going to become more like Sodom. So that's the, the real point of it, is, is that, that there's not enough of a, of a righteous presence in the town to check its conduct. So, but that's possibly, well, as Christians would argue, that that's a later rabbinic interpretation, this ten men thing. And, and the reason it would be argued that way is, well, it's in the Talmud, and the Talmud is a couple hundred years after Jesus. Jewish people would argue that, that you're mistaken about the Talmud, because what they believed was is that, that the oral law was given at Sinai at the same time as the, uh, the Torah itself, and that, that it was intended never to be written down. In fact, they believed God told him, uh, Moses, not to write it down. However, when the diaspora happened, when, when more Jews were living outside the land than inside the land— there became a need to codify this stuff and write it down. And what we get from that is two different Talmuds, one from Babylon and, and one from Jerusalem. And so those sometimes compete with one another, and scholars compete with one another back and forth. There's a lot of uh, rabbinic correspondence between those two schools. And, and so the main one that's used today is actually, surprisingly, the Babylonian Talmud. So at any rate, that's where that's supposed to, that, that's where it comes from. So a, a Jew would argue, no, it way predates uh, in fact, it's it's given simultaneously with the uh, with the Torah itself, and Christians would say, nope, that comes in a couple hundred years after the the date of Christ. So it it's an irresolvable conflict whether this is a synagogue or not. The word here for place of prayer can be used as a synagogue and is not in the, not in the Bible, but it's used that way in extra biblical literature, including people like the Jewish historian Josephus. So it's hard to figure this out, and ultimately, does it matter very much? No, it doesn't. But it is interesting that the people they talk to are a group of women. Remember what, what a minyan meant was ten righteous men, specifically. And there's, there, there, uh, there's some evidence that, that that can be loosened, because a woman was not allowed to read Scripture in public and all this at different times. But So we don't really know what's going on here. But what we do know is, is that what Paul finds is obviously a group of women. It, it doesn't mention a man. There, there is a man who comes into the picture in Philippi as one of the leaders of the church, and he is the Philippian jailer who is watching over Paul and Silas after they are jailed. So what we, what we see here is, is they come together and they find a group of women there, and one who heard us, Luke says, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which is further inland. She's a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Well, so she was probably also a wealthy woman, and this idea of being a worshiper of God means that she's not Jewish. 
um, it, it would have defined her as such. She's a worshiper of God in the same way that Cornelius, the centurion, um, who gets a vision to say, come, have Peter come, um, that she's that kind of worshiper of God. She is not converted. Um, but she, she's a wealthy woman, and, and the way to know that is that she is a seller of purple goods. Purple goods that required um, an incredible amount of work to extract the dye to start with, and then to procure or to secure and preserve that same dye. It, it was a heavily labor-intensive uh, operation. The, you could get the dye from one source and one source only, which was um, a mollusk, like a, a um, a whelk, uh, an oyster, a clam, those are all mollusks. They're animals that live inside those shells. And so th- there was a gland that secreted a dye, uh, secreted uh, a hormone that when it was exposed to air would turn purple. That was the only source of purple. And each one would produce about n- not quite a gram of this dye. So it would require an enormous amount of this stuff, and it would be incredibly labor-intensive, not only to, to procure it, but also to treat it and to be able to use it in this way. And so if you're a seller of purple goods, if you're somebody who's dealing in purple, then you're dealing largely with the wealthiest members of society, and you're selling very expensive goods. And, and it's largely because of the labor involved. The, the Getting the material itself, I mean, when I say raw material is what I mean, not material, but the raw material for the dye would be so labor-intensive that mostly what you're being paid back for is, is your labor because you're just taking these things out of the sea. So at any rate, that's who Lydia is. She would have been one of the wealthy people in the town and a worshiper of God. She was a seeker who thought she had found what she was seeking in uh, Judaism. So the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So it's an act of the Holy Spirit that that enables Lydia to open this up and hear it. And then after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they go to this place, they go to this important city in Macedonia, and they come across the, the place of prayer there. They come across some women, and, and we're told about one specific woman who is a very important citizen in the town. She would, she would have been somebody who had some sway. She would have been um, a, a major player in the trade there, um, and, and somebody who, who would have been significant in this place, and so, so the Lord's opening a door, and, and in the same way that Jesus told the disciples to go to a place and stay in one place, where they found somebody who was a person of peace, and to let your peace remain in that place. So here, Luke tells us they do in Thyatira with Lydia. So she is a person of peace. So a man of Macedonia beckons them to come, and then what do they do? They meet women when they're there, and, and then they find a place. Of, of refuge, a place from which they can launch a base of operations so they can begin the mission work because now they have a place to do it, and that is with Lydia. And so they would have had entree into society in a way they ordinarily wouldn't have. So there's something really important that happens in the meeting of this particular woman that that they come into contact with and stay with. But but it's interesting to me that God uses a man of Macedonia to beckon him there, Paul there, and then what do they find? They don't find a synagogue. They find a place of prayer and a group of women. And so God's preparing the way. He's preparing a way for them to begin the mission work in Macedonia. In the gospel, 
Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That it's, it's One of the things that, that we can make a mistake with in the, in the church today is we can rely so heavily on grace that we don't have any place for works and obedience. Jesus is clearly speaking here because of where we have just come. He's clearly speaking of loving one another, but it's more than that. And it's, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it's one of the things that they're to make disciples of all nations, okay, and, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So it's more than just loving one another. There's content to that. How do we love one another? And, and early in the, um, in the ministry, he tells them very clearly how you love one another, and then he shows people how to love one another. It's, it's um, uppermost in Jesus' mind that we would obey him. And it's, it's, think about it with your parents, for instance. Um, the way you showed your parents when you were a child that you loved them was you obeyed them. It meant I respect your authority, certainly, that comes along with it, but it also is an act of love in the sense that it, it, it's, a, it's a reflection of the trust you have in your parents, that you believe that they actually do know more than you, <laughs> and they know... Good, good and evil in ways that they don't have to tell you all the evils. They can just say, don't do this. Be careful about this. And, and you should obey that. You should, you should walk in that way because you love them, respect them, and trust them. And so that's what Jesus is saying is, is that, that if you love him, then you will keep his word. And if you do that, then my father will love him. And then we will come to him and make our home with him. How do they do that? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And then he goes on to say, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So you could say that one of the marks of love for Jesus would be keeping his word. If you don't keep his word, then you don't love him. And the word that you hear is not mine, he says, but the Father's who sent me. So if you keep my words, what you need to recognize is you're keeping the Father's words. So he's pointing to, to that and saying, I'm a faithful witness of the Father. What I tell you, I don't tell you on my own authority. I tell you on the authority of the Father, and I'm faithfully giving you his words. He goes on to say, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I have said to you. So he's promising that the work of the Holy Spirit will include reminding them of the things that he said, and we see evidence of that all over John's gospel, where later, after his death, they'll say, oh, we understand now. We understood what was said before, but we, we didn't understand it now. And so the Holy Spirit is, is reminding them of these things so that they can then be more faithful witnesses even still of what Jesus has said, what he meant, and how to live out the Christian life. And it's not just to these disciples that gets the helper, the Holy Spirit. No, it's us as well. So we, we get within us the presence of the Holy Spirit who should enable us to properly and appropriately keep the words of Jesus and do the things that he commanded us to do. And then he goes on to say this great thing, peace, shalom, I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, one of the great, um, not achievements is not the right word, but w one of the, the great uh, things that Rome thought of itself, let's say, 
was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And, and, and it's the reason that the, the, um, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lead Jewish leaders were concerned about Palm Sunday. They, they saw that as possibly disrupting that Pax Romana, and then the Romans would crack down on them because suddenly there's an uproar in the city, and it wasn't a planned for parade. It wasn't anything like that. It was proclaiming another one to be king. And so this, is, this has the possibility of destroying and disrupting the peace of Rome. And, and Rome enforced its peace at the point of a sword. So the, the peace that Rome brought came at, uh, with a certain way of enforcing that peace, and that was to say we, we recognize that the general and natural state of things is chaotic, and it's not orderly, and it's potentially uh, up- uprisings and revolts, and those happened kind of regularly in the, in the area. Um, there was the Bar Kokhba revolt. There was the Maccabean revolt. So you've got all these kinds of things playing in there. And so they, they enforce the peace. They maintain the peace at the point of a sword. Don't step out of line. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, if you've got Roman soldiers all over the place, then you are going to be troubled and afraid because you don't want to step out of line because the punishment for stepping out of line is so great. So the peace that Rome gave was not nearly the same as what Jesus gives because what the peace Jesus gives is to assure us of the sovereignty of God while at the same time his cross, his life, the resurrection, the ascension, the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf that he made the sacrifice on our behalf to make peace with God, not at the point of a sword, but in love. And so love is the bond of this peace as opposed to the sword being the bond of the Roman peace. We're all okay, aren't we? As long as you don't step out of line, everything's fine. That's not the same in, in the peace that only Jesus can bring. Because you, you could one of the sacrificial system issues was is that you could make a peace offering. And what you were doing making a peace offering was you were recognizing yourself to be at peace with God. So you made this peace offering in order to celebrate it. And when you did, then anybody who was there, it was one of the ways the poor made sure that there was always enough for the poor. Because it, when you made the peace offering, then you also had a feast with that animal, excluding certain parts. And so Everybody participated in that peace. It brought everybody in. If you were at peace with God, then it brought peace in the community. You're peace with your fellow man, and you celebrate that with the peace offering. And so Jesus says, I give that to you permanently. I give it to you permanently. And when we celebrate the Eucharist, when we celebrate communion in church, that's what we're celebrating, the peace that Jesus has established and the peace that we've chosen to establish in our midst. And so when we celebrate the Eucharist, we we do that right after we say, peace be unto you, to one another. And so we celebrate that peace offering meal together. And it's a glorious and wonderful thing that we do when we do that. And so Jesus tells us, don't be afraid or troubled. You don't have to be, because the fear of judgment can be gone. If you're covered in the blood of Christ, then your sins are forgiven. That's a period, end of sentence thing. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. 
because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does, you may believe. So uh, why would I rejoice when somebody goes away? And and his um, argument here is, is, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. Well, I, I still want you. I would rather have you here, right? I mean, the, the, not, I think not a single disciple would have said, Jesus, we're, we're ready for you to go away. <laughs> that wasn't the issue at all. So so they they would have thought, oh, I love you, therefore I don't want you to go away. And he said, if you'd love me, you would, you would have actually rejoiced in this because I go to the Father who's greater than I. Well, so wait, I, I'm, I'm very confused, Jesus. And so that's the reason he has, he's... He's wrapped into this in the middle of the sandwich. The reason, the reason he wrapped in the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and, and then make it all live in us. And so what he's saying is, is that, that you're actually going to be glad that I'm gone because of what it enables. When I'm gone, I, I, look, I'm preparing a place for you in the Father. In the Father's house are many mansions. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Well, so that's bridegroom language. And as I said, so he's building, not literally, but, but he is making place for us in the Father. But he also promises at the end of that great commission, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And here he's telling them how that's going to be accomplished. It's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is still with us, but because he has gone to the Father he is with us across space and time throughout all generations to the end of time. It's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. He is, he is poured out among all flesh. And so all over the world, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have been given the same Holy Spirit we have. And it was a, a marvel and a wonder to Peter when he sees that at the house of Cornelius, that holy moly, God jumped out of the box that I had for him, and he brought these Gentiles in. And and here again in in Thyatira, not in Thyatira, in Philippi, the same thing happens. Is that these Gentiles, these who were would be kind of converts, Lydia is the same as Cornelius in many ways. They've not made that last step into conversion into Judaism, but but they appreciate what they know of Judaism. They've begun to follow the God of Judaism, and then Paul gives them the fullness of the story. And then they come in. And so it's one of the first European converts right here is Lydia, because this is in uh, an area in Turkey that, that would be considered certainly in Europe because it's extreme western Turkey where this happens. But it, it, so the, the, the circle is widening throughout this period of time. And so, you know, first it went to Samaritans and then it went to Cornelius. And now it's gone all the way up into Turkey. So there's a lot of space because Cornelius would have been in the land. This is not in the land. And so now we see the first European convert, but she's a worshiper of God. She's somebody who's already seeking and believes that she's found, but she hasn't been completely convinced. She hasn't converted. Here, she accepts it. She accepts baptism. She accepts everything and then says, please come stay with me. In the, the final lesson today is, is from uh, Revelation 21, 10, uh, which is just, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven of God. And then it skips forward to um, Revelation 22 um, through verse 5. 
It says, the angel, of, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, what this is, is a recapitulation of what we see in Ezekiel 47. And this is Ezekiel's vision of the end times and the restoration of all things. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from behold the th- below the threshold of the temple towards the east, because the temple faced east. And so the water's going out of the temple into the world. And it ultimately goes down to the Arabah, to the Salt Sea, and it gives life there. It's the Dead Sea. And then it goes from there out into the Mediterranean, and it makes everything fresh as it goes along. And, and they believe that, that in the end, in, in the new creation, that all water will be fresh water. It will all be potable water. It will sustain all manner of life. And so the things that live in salt water will be changed into things that no longer need salt water to survive. So they, they see this same thing. They see it flowing all the way out from the temple and then bringing life to the world by going into the Mediterranean and then dispersing all across the world. They see this same image of everything being restored to God's original plan which would have been that all nations would be incorporated into the covenant. And so what they see is that everything begins at Jerusalem and spreads out from there. And we see that's exactly what Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses first in Judea, then in Samaria. Judea, the, the, this larger district, the area of Judah, Jerusalem is at the center of that, and then into Samaria, which is outside Judaism, but they are from the tribes. So they were originally part of Israel, and then they became a separatist movement along the way. And then from there, from Samaria, so you're, you're, you're expanding the reach through people who are already familiar with things, and then into the world from there. And so it's exactly the progress we see of the gospel in the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem. Many converts are made there. Persecution breaks out after Stephen. Philip, the deacon, goes out to Samaria and proclaims the gospel there and reaps a harvest, gets the apostles to come in to to Samaria and, and lay hands on these people, and they see the Spirit poured out on them. And then here in this one, God takes the initiative with both Cornelius and um, in Philippi. So God's taking the initiative to move this out further and further from the center, which is Jerusalem, exactly the way Ezekiel saw it. <clears throat> he says it flows here. John says that, that the, the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So there's no temple in the new, is, new Jerusalem because there, there's no need for it. The throne of God is there. He is present with us. Uh, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, where that come from? Well, that goes all the way back to the garden with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So it's it, it it's a, a conglomeration of things. It, it's not a tree with one kind of fruit, but 12 kinds of fruit, and it, and it yields them each month. So every month of the year, different fruit. <clears throat> The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And, and Ezekiel sees that same thing. Um, he says that their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And so, so does it mean that in the kingdom of God that we need to be healed? That No, we've already been told there is no 
sickness, sighing, or dying in those places. So we know that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, were for the healing of the nations. And so what we see is is that, that God's bringing the nations back into the fold, and he does so through the tree of life. And who is the tree of life? The tree of life is Jesus. It's the cross is the tree of life for us. The Torah was the tree of life, known as the tree of life. Jesus is the word of God. Torah was the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And so Torah was for the healing of the nations. It was intended to be proclaimed in that way. And, it was, and that's the reason when I said earlier about there had to be 10 righteous men in a place to have a synagogue, the, 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 the knowledge of Torah, the knowledge of God was supposed to go forth into the world. So then the word of God becomes Jesus. And then so he was the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. So, in other words, that that it will be literally the city of God. In Roman times, there would have been plenty of accursed things in Jerusalem because they, they only tolerated Judaism as a licit religion, an allowable religion. There were many allowable religions. So it was, it was a good thing to be an allowable religion. That means you could practice it. But, but it wasn't the dominant religion. Even in Jerusalem, there, there were other religions practiced there, and those things would have been accursed things because they were worshiping idols. So he says, no longer will there be anything accursed as there was at the time John wrote, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful picture that, that John has seen here, but it's, but it's just taking the, the, the vision that was given to Ezekiel way back, 600 years before, and, and, and seeing it now in fullness in a way that Ezekiel couldn't see it because he didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about the Lamb. And so John ta- has that same vision because it's a godly, God-given vision but now he sees it in a complete way that Ezekiel couldn't because the incarnation, the uh, crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension had not yet happened. So, so it's not surprising it would be the same vision. It would be surprising if it were in conflict in any way with that vision. No, it, it's the vision that, that shows that the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. The nations that we saw a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 7 are all incorporated into the people of God and the bride of Christ. So we have to continually be willing to expand our idea about who we should love. That when the, when the, um, the lawyer asked Jesus about who's my neighbor, it was because, and, and that which prompted Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was because he wanted to know who he had to love. And he had to love his neighbor. So who's my neighbor is a legitimate question in, in interpreting who I have to love. Jesus then opens that and says, anybody who needs it. Because Jesus at the end doesn't say uh, anything, doesn't tell us anything about the person that is being helped here. Only at the end he said, who was the neighbor? So your job is to be a neighbor, not to define your neighbor in that way. And so in the same way, we have to open our hearts to everybody God wants to bring in to our lives in order that we might be neighbors to them and we might love them. And in that way, we're keeping his word. 
And so it's important that we commit ourselves to the keeping of his word, to teach, to teaching others to obey everything he commands. Well, how can we teach others? Largely, we teach it by doing it ourselves. And that becomes an attractive force for the church to see, look how those Christians love one another. It was one of the most attractive forces in the church in the early growth periods of the church after the fall of the Roman Empire. When the plagues came, Christians would stay behind and tend not only for one another, but for all the sick and the dying, because they didn't worry about the future because they knew that was taken care of. They knew because of the resurrection of Jesus that we too who believe will be. But the primary thing for them was then to be obedient as a show of their love for Jesus and to display their love for those created in the image of God. And we're called to do the same. What does that look like in your life this week? How would you extend yourself on behalf of someone else?